The old twister was in trouble again. Danger is closing in fast on that man by the name of Jacob. Having made the final separation from the uncle that he had by the name of Laban in Paddan Aram, that was a place that he had fled to about 20 years beforehand, and he had gone there with nothing more than a staff in his hand. That was a place, Paddan Aram, as well, where he had labored for 20 long years for his two wives, Leah and also Rachel. That was a place as well where God had favored him, and he had prospered him greatly, so that he's going out from Paddan Aram not with a staff in his hand merely now, but he's coming out with great riches, with large flocks and herds. That's the place as well where, in the person of his uncle Laban, he had encountered a man who was every bit as crafty as himself, who could move the pieces on the chessboard in a way that equaled Jacob and set checkmate for him. He had tricked, and he had cheated and he had thwarted, and he had disappointed, and he had infuriated Jacob on numerous occasions. And Laban had been a source to Jacob of endless sorrow and trouble and trial. But now that Jacob and his family is leaving the area behind, now that the kind of struggle and trouble that Laban brought before him is over, now that he's standing on the borders of his God-given heritage within the promised land, surely the path is all plain sailing now for Jacob. He has emerged from his trials, and he is going forward now on a problem-free pathway. Well, not so. At least, not yet. Because one danger had no sooner been left behind in the form of Laban than another is closing fast on him. Look at verse 6 of Genesis 32, and you read there, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee. And four hundred men with him. Jacob is looking at a real danger here. Because with Esau, his brother whom Jacob had many times disenfranchised and cheated, coming with an army, 400 men. The intention in Esau's heart is to gain revenge here to fight against Jacob once more. Jacob has to get onto the chessboard and scheme and devise and plan, and he did. What did he do? Well, we read in the passage today in Genesis 32 how he divided his forces into two main groups. He sent the weakest section to the front. He poured present after present going in advance of him to Esau, and he accompanied all of those gifts with humble and flattering words, and he hoped that the soft ammunition he was using here might have special power over the castle of Esau's hard heart. So now everything's in order. The plan is set in motion. It's got wheels. And according to the record of verse 24, we read, Jacob 
was left alone. Left alone having dispatched his wives and family over the brook Jabbok. Left alone on a black, silent, mysterious night. And the blackness and the silence and the mysteriousness is only added to by the unanswered question that is snaking its way through Jacob's mind. And the question is, will Esau accept or reject my presence of peace? And he's left alone this night, and he's in agitation and anxiety and fear for what is going to happen the next day. And as he is left alone, suddenly a hand seized Jacob. Now, if you're there with your thoughts on a dark night as he is, and all of a sudden, and you didn't even see the figure coming, the hand grips you. Well, I know some of you walking through this building and maybe opening a door in the darkness. Next thing, you've nearly jumped clean out of your skin. A chill went all its way down through Jacob's being here. His diesel, his muscles, all of a sudden become tense. And he quickly becomes locked in a struggle here with this attacker, a struggle that continues on through the night until just when the day is about to break, Jacob's assailant smote him in the thigh, disarmed him, disabled him, defeated him. And as Jacob came to realize, this one with whom I've been wrestling all the night, isn't Esau? Or any other ordinary man for that matter? But as an angel, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the covenant, many people feel a pre-incarnate form of the Son of God, the Lord Himself, one who had the power to wonderfully bless His life, and it was as much as poor Jacob could do as to cling tenaciously and cry desperately to Him, I will not let thee go except thy bless me. And that's what happened. The end of verse 29 in Genesis 32 records, and he blessed him there. Now, Jacob's bruised, and he's been battered. But by that way, he entered into blessing. This is a remarkable passage. How did it happen? Well, some notable points here. The first one is this, blessing came after a defeat. Blessing came after a defeat. There was a struggle here, that much is obvious. In fact, a wrestling match. And if you look at the terms that are raised here in the passage, you'll come to a conclusion. Many people over the years, I imagine, have come to uh, misinterpret what the passage here is all about. They've misapplied it They've taken it in areas that are either wrong or secondary. And I know that some will see it as a second blessing kind of experience here. Others will see it as prevailing in prayer. He kept wrestling until he moved the heart of God to move toward him and bless him. 
And how many times have you heard it preached? And I'm not saying you can't make this application. I'm saying it's not primary. Jacob wrestled with God in prayer. He won through. He obtained the blessing. And so we must do the same. That's the thought. Now, in a certain sense, those who teach that are not far off the mark. But what I'm saying today is if you want a study in prayer, you look to an earlier part of the chapter here, Genesis 32, the verse 9 through the verse 12, and you'll see prayer is decidedly the main theme there from 9 to 12, and you'll have those words which are spectacular where Jacob is saying in verse 10, I am not worthy. And if there's a way by which we must approach God in prayer, this is how we begin. I am not worthy. Not worthy to be here. Not worthy to be blessed while I'm here. Not worthy to get even a fragment of an answer. I am not worthy. A proper study on prayer in verse 9 to 12. But from verse 24 to the end of the chapter 32, you'll find here the emphasis in the Bible. It is not placed upon Jacob's activity. As though all the focus is on Jacob's struggling and wrestling and pulling all the muscles and all the sinews in his body into this primary aim to get through with God, the primary emphasis here is on God's activity. He's wrestling with Jacob, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him. He instigated the wrestle. They wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Why would the Lord want to wrestle with Jacob or with anyone? Well, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Bible commentator, said something very applicable here. He said, the angel wrestled with Jacob to overcome him. Jacob was a fleshly man, had to be overcome in his flesh before his spirit could be reached. Now, what Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Griffith Thomas underlined as well, and his quote is there in front of you, the wrestling was an endeavor on God's part to break down Jacob's opposition, to bring him to an end of himself, to take from him all self-trust, all confidence in his own cleverness and resource. You see, up until that point, that's what this man had been doing right through life. He'd been trusting in himself. He'd become very confident in his own abilities here. I'm clever. I am resourceful. And Thomas said to make him known that Esau is to be overcome and Canaan obtained, not by craft, or flattery, but by divine grace and power. And I think those two men, Barnhouse, Thomas, got it right. Jacob had much of the flesh about him. And yet God's desire was still to bless him. Now, can you picture that? You've got a man and he's full of his own importance and he's full of his own resources and he's thinking I'm making it by myself and his flesh is right up there. He feels so powerful in and of himself. Why doesn't God just abandon him and let him make shipwreck? It's a mercy he doesn't. A mercy he's interested in blessing this kind of character. A mercy he's interested in blessing you and I. 
and to break down Jacob's natural rebellion, to drain off all trust that he had in his own resources, to remove every reliance that he had on the arm of the flesh for strength, to batter down his flesh, to cause him to depend upon the omnipotence of God alone. God exhausts him here. And Jacob is emptied before him. And all he can do is lean upon him, cling to God's man. No mean task. Jacob had displayed a lot of this twisted attitude in his life right up until now. Showed that? Way back when the instigation of his mother was there in Genesis 27, he used his conniving sinful means to get the blessing from Esau. So, self in the flesh was at work then. Again, when he was in exile out of the father's house and he's lying asleep out there on the open plain and he's nothing but a stone for a pillow, God appeared to Jacob, promised, I will protect you and prosper you. But the old nature... It really couldn't be doing with that entirely and wanted to do something itself and it struggled to express itself and he tried on that area to negotiate with God and bargain with God for his protection. You can read about it in Genesis 28 verse 20 and 22. The flesh again in that circumstance had risen up. Pursue his history all the time he's with Laban. And he hasn't changed too much. He's the same character, the same self-interest, not for him to be totally content with the Almighty's promise that I will give you flocks and I will give you herds. He has to stumble forward by his own means to obtain these. Genesis 30, verse 37 to 42. Genesis chapter 32 is another example here. If further proof were needed that he wants to walk by the arm of the flesh and get victory that way, as soon as he prays, a spectacular, wonderful prayer, admittedly though it was, he still turns around and he depends upon his own arrangements to appease Esau. And so the proof is given he's depending on the flesh. The story of Jacob's life was one where self was at the center. Is that true of us? How much God had to pull down? How much God had to break? How much God had to shatter in this man's life and to destroy before he could even get round to starting to build his blessing into the life of this saint of his? Therefore, the wrestling. And make no mistake about it, the Lord has as big a job on His hands with some of us as He had with Jacob those thousands of years ago. For before we will be in the place where He wants us to be, before we will walk in His ways and do His work and do the work according to His will and by His way, before we will give up our dependence on the arm of fleshly strength and depend only and wholly upon divine aid, before we advance in the pathway of holiness and in our knowledge of God, there is much speed work to be done, much battering and bruising and breaking is needed. And you know what? Our old flesh will fight it all the way. It's a battle. And you can see that if you consider the struggle for the flesh here 
that Jacob had. See the struggle in its description. Verse 24 records, there wrestled a man with him. That word wrestled is strong. It points to this was intense, it was energetic, it was a boisterous contest. Jacob is resisting steadfastly while God is working powerfully. The word wrestled comes from the term very light dust. You can still see how it's applied with wrestlers today. They get the white powder the white dust, those sumo guys and others, for extra grip. Back then, it was fine sand or dust that would give you a firmer hold on the person who's your opponent. There's a forceful struggle involved here. And the fact that can be seen not only from the description of the contest here, but from the duration of the contest is the intensity of the battle. It lasted until the breaking of the day. And so, if you're looking for something, you have stubbornness stamped all over this particular struggle. Now, how often have you and I experienced something like that in our lives? The Lord comes to us, arms full of blessing, willing to bless. What do we do? We run towards them, of course, and eagerly grasp the blessing and say, I'll have that. Well, I don't think so. More often than not, we want to flatter ourselves, think we're doing something big for ourselves, that we're not completely dependent upon God, that we haven't exhausted all of our resources. And sinfully, we show reluctance to accept what God is willing to give, and sometimes we resist it. Oh, but that can't be true. Well, it was true in Paul's life. And in Romans 7, verse 18 and 22 to 24, he tells us, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There you have words describing Jacob's struggle. The flesh in us resists all the entrance of blessing. And the process of breaking us down is often long, but there can't be any real blessing for our souls. Apart from that, God wrestles with us not to prove He's stronger than us, but to make us conscious of our weakness, to break us down so that we might lean entirely on Him for strength. There was a struggle here. Thank God there was also a success. And quite ironically, the success came about by defeat. That's the point we're making. It came after the defeat. Verse 25 of Genesis 32, And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
Whoever suggested Jacob got the blessing of God due to the fact he wrestled through to victory and he turned God's mind and all of that, the very opposite is the case. He didn't triumph here. God defeated him. The Most High touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh through the hip out of joint, rendered all of his resistance null and void, made Jacob helpless. In other words, he broke him. So much so that when the powerful touch fell in this struggle, Jacob had to stop resisting, and he had to start relying in one moment. And he probably thought he was doing quite well. All his strength was gone, and he could do nothing now than do what? Lean his whole weight upon his God cling to him. And that was the key to his eventual success. It was then as he clung to the Lord in his defeated, in his powerless state, it was then that he cried as he's clinging to him, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And it was when God had broken him that we read in the 29th verse, and he blessed him there. Here's the question. What's it going to take with us before we are going to do God's will? Before we will seek real victory over the flesh? Before we will reject our sin? Before we will deplore anything to do with self? Before we will lean entirely upon the Lord? Before we are really eager for His blessing and that alone? What will it take? I suggest to you it'll take nothing less than the same procedure as was adopted in Jacob's case. God must dislocate our plans. He must batter our flesh, maybe throw our lives into turmoil, maybe even our bodies before we will bow to His will and be brought into blessing. But I tell you, the cost will be worth it. Blessing came after a defeat. And then blessing came upon a declaration. You'll notice here in the passage, Jacob was obliged to admit certain things before the blessing of God came his way. So he had to declare something. God teased that, worked that out of him here. One was an admission concerning his nature. That had been the big problem all along. God delights in honest confession. His desire was that Jacob should make a plain admission of who he was. And so that's what's happening here in verse 27 when God asks him, what is thy name? He got the answer he was looking for, and he said, Jacob. Jacob, that's my name. Now, Jacob means something. And Jacob lived up to his name hand in glove. He was a perfect example of his own name. It means a supplanter, a contender, a heel catcher, a deceiver, a slanderer, someone who follows someone with evil intent, other shades of the same meaning, and to cause Jacob to confess who he really was. The Lord forced him to admit to his name with all of the associations that name had. 
Jacob, helpless, feeling his nothingness, feeling his worthlessness, he hid nothing now. He openly announced his name, and in announcing that, admitted his nature. And it was only then that the doors opened for God to walk in and bless him, and bless him he did. Did you know that you get another sidelight on this passage if you look to the book of Hosea? In Hosea 12 and verse 4, we are told that, and Moses doesn't make any mention of it in Genesis, but Hosea says, Jacob wept. A word that means he flowed in drops, he mourned, he lamented. And the significance is, not only was the body of Jacob bruised, who don't have joined with God working upon him, but his very heart was broken. Not just the surface dealing, but he was broken in his heart. He brought out a real confession. He evidenced real conviction. He mourned over his carnality, over his corruption, over his self and over his sin. He lamented. He shed tears because of these things. Now, the Lord was well pleased with that. Too often is it not the case our tears don't flow? Our eyes are dry. We're not as worried about our own shortcomings and sins as we should be. In Psalm 51, 17, David said, The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, thou wilt not despise. Isaiah 66, verse 2, For all these things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. God wants from us an admission of our nature. He wants us to confess our sin, confess our love of self, confess our utter emptiness and worthlessness. And He wants us to mean every word of that confession. Notice Jacob also was compelled to utter an admission of his need. Not only of his nature, but of his need. And he does that in verse 26, because there Jacob cries out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And that's equal to saying here, Lord, I can't get by and through this on my own. My own strength isn't enough. It has filled me. Oh, give me, give me, give me thy blessing. It's thy power that I need because I cannot do without it. Bless me. Do you get up in the morning and think, I can tackle today with my own resources and my own strength because I tried it yesterday and I think it did a fair good job? Or do you get up and say, Lord, I need Thee. Before I even go out the door today, I need Thee. And in the church and in the Lord's work, the need of the hour is Holy Ghost power on you and me. Without God's blessing, all will be in vain. And I repeat that all will be in vain. Totally void, empty, useless, a disaster. And we need to get away to God as Jacob did here and confess this. Lord, I can't go another step. I don't want to go another step. I dare not try another step without thy blessing. Pour it on me. Showers of blessing. 
showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. It is for the showers we plead. And that leads us on to our final major heading today. Blessing came after the defeat. It came upon a declaration. It came when it did come in a deluge. In a deluge. What Jacob received that day was no meager or mediocre kind of blessing. Actually, when you read through the passage, you find it was dramatic, tremendous, terrific, a real blessing. Notice the elements in it here. Verse 28 through 30 revealed to us at least three elements. You'll probably find more, but there are at least three here in the blessing that God granted Jacob. Verse 28, for example, talks about a new power. Well, we'll read 27 and 28, and we'll see this new power that is granted. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thy power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. So a new power was given to him. Now, for Jacob, the day of gaining advantage, working on the chessboard, outmaneuvering people by his own skill and ingenuity and cleverness and guile and all the rest of it, and deceit, that day was to be over. God had provided him with a new power, power that brought heavenly success through his own personal failure, power that came through Jacob, renouncing himself, looking to the person of God, looking to the pity of God, clinging on to the promises of God, looking to the performances of God in his life, and saying, Lord, I need thy power alone, because mine is not sufficient. It just takes me into the teeth of danger all the time. It just leaves me frustrated. And so the alteration to his name from Jacob, the twister, the supplanter, he became known as Israel, ruler with God, new power is going to be with him, would remain with him as long as the flesh is being subdued and he puts himself under the control of God's grace. Not only a new power, but a new prayer was evident. In verse 29, and Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee. What does he want to know here? Thy name. You would not be play, praying redundantly. If you got up tomorrow morning, before you go to bed tonight, this afternoon, if you should be praying simply to the Lord, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Now that's encouraging. Jacob had schemed and prayed. He had planned and he had prayed. He had connived and he had prayed in the past. But not in the way we see him praying here. Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. There's an eagerness to know more about the all-powerful one who had defeated him upon whom now he depended. He wanted to know more about God. This is tantamount to saying, more about Jesus would I know. That's what I need. That's the thrust of his request. That's the ground that Paul the apostle stood on when, for example, in Philippians 3 and 10, he cried, that I may know him. 
That's what's going to help. That's what's going to propel me to spiritual victory. That's what's going to arm me and keep the flesh down and keep the spirit up that I may know Him. Is that not the motto for our lives? We know enough about ourselves, and we can mask our deficiencies very well. But alone with God, we know our hearts. We know where we are with Him. We need to get further. We need to know more of Him. Tell me, I pray thee, thy name, a new power, a new prayer. And the third but central element of the day here is a new perception. It's the very crux of the events here. Jacob, what did he get? Genesis 32 and 30. He got a wonderful vision of God. He saw the Lord face to face. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Peniel means the face of God, or it means more literally, turn thy God. Turn thy face to me again. I detect shades of Psalm 80 here where the psalmist is crying, turn us again. O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. And throughout the Scriptures we find the face of God is an indicator, a symbol of His friendship and His favor, His fellowship, and also His force. In the face of Jesus, that's where I'm going to receive blessing, looking into His face, becoming more and more like Him, being transformed into the same image as Paul puts it day by day. Number 6, verse 25 and 26, the Lord make His face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and lift up His countenance, same word, face, lift up His face upon thee and give thee peace. In the face of Christ there is glory as well. Second Corinthians 4 and 6, Paul is speaking about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How am I going to go forward in the Christian life? By getting a big dream or a new revelation that somebody else hasn't got, and then go out and parade it in front of men and say, God revealed this to me, and it's a lot of nonsense and the height of arrogance to even think that you got it? No. It's beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's no shortcut to blessing. This is how it comes knowing more of Christ, feasting our souls more upon Him, seeing the glory of God there in His face. In that face, too, you have the motive for devotion. For when you and I catch a vision, a real vision, of the face of God, like Isaiah, sixth chapter of his prophecy, our hearts are going to melt, we'll be alerted to the foulness of our own sin, we'll cry to God for mercy, we'll be striving to work in his service as fit instruments, we'll be mightily, we'll be marvelously, we'll be magnificently blessed, we'll be changed. There was an orthodox clergyman one time, and he got into the pulpit, he found a slip of paper put on his Bible, in the pulpit Bible, and the words were taken from John 12 and 21, we would see Jesus. And the pastor felt distressed. I'm letting these people down somehow. They feel I'm shortchanging them spiritually, but he wanted to be a shepherd, not a false teacher, and he wasn't offended, and he, he set about the task of examining himself and his work humbly, sincerely. I'm sure he checked through the previous sermons and all the rest of it. The result was he made the 
sad, yet happy discovery that those people in the congregation asking for this were justified in making that particular demand. And within a short time of preaching and ministering again, he found another slip of paper in his pulpit in that Bible, these words this time, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now, when you come here, I want you to see Christ. And I want to feel that you're feeling your need of Him to get nearer to God, to know more of Him. That's the deepest need of our souls. We would see Jesus. Not only that, we must see Jesus. Like Jacob, we need a new power, we need a new prayer, we need a new perception, and we require it every single day that we live. Now, notice the evidence of it, because that was clear to be seen. This deluge of blessing. I'm going to take you to some of his words here, and initially in Genesis 32, the verse 30, you find that he goes over the Jabbok River. The Jabbok is given a new name. When he was crossing in the direction that led away from the promised land, it was just plain Jabbok, meaning a pouring out, meaning an emptying. But when he comes back, having met with God, the stream becomes... Peniel, or Penuel, the face of God, he renamed it. There'd been a change in his words. There was also a change in his walk. Verse 31, and as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. He bore the mark of this encounter with God. He was marred for life maimed, but mighty, marred for the world, mighty for God. Surely there are lessons for us here. We don't believe, as some may, that the root of sin in the life of Jacob was extracted through this experience, that he became sinless because of it. That's not possible, but we do believe in the possibility of living a holy life of a continual mortifying of the flesh, day-by-day day experience, of a progressive dying unto sin and living unto righteousness, of a denying of self, of a frank admission of our nature. We're twisted and sinful of our need. We need God to intervene in our lives. We do believe in the blessing of God. We do believe in a seeing of the face of the Lord. And more than that, we just don't believe it's merely possible. We believe it's absolutely essential. May God deal with us as He did Jacob. Empty us of ourselves that He might fill us with Himself. Deal out effective blows to sin and self and cause us to live to His glory. Remember, blessing came after a defeat upon a declaration of his own nature and his need in a deluge, how God was favoring this man. And may God take us to Peniel, not once or twice, but daily, again and again and again.